the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The fast pace of today's world is creating a silent epidemic that's impacting our physical and emotional well-being. According to today's guest, Dr. Paul Knapper, our accelerated lifestyles, always on technology, and ever-increasing job demands have created a tsunami of overwhelm and anxiety. Dr. Knapper warns that we've lost our agency, which is the ability to deal with stress and act as an effective agent for ourselves. Dr. Knapper leads a management psychology practice and is a co-author of the book, The Power of Agency, The Seven Principles to Conquer Obstacles, Make Effective Decisions, and Create a Life on Your Own Terms. Welcome, Dr. Knapper. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So, Doctor, this is really a a very important topic because it's been reported that two of every three Americans say that they are extremely or somewhat anxious. How is the way that we're living today impacting our well-being? Well, as everybody knows, we live in a a much faster-paced society than we did 20 years ago, and it continues to accelerate. So whether you're in business and trying to adapt to changing uh, customer demands or you are simply um, working from your home, people are aware that things are moving much, much faster. We are expected to be available uh, to communicate almost instantaneously most hours of the day and night, and there's information simply coming at us at all hours. So one strength of our culture as Americans is we, we say yes to new things. So, you know, we embrace the new. And, and for the most part, that's worked well for us. However, in today's culture, too much of a good thing is, is sometimes not a good thing. And people are, as you said, simply experiencing overwhelm on a, on a much more frequent basis than is healthy and, and optimal. So I started doing this work. I work with uh, business leaders in Fortune 500 companies and some smaller companies as well. Um, and you know, when I first started doing this work 20 years ago, I rarely heard people saying to me, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by what I'm facing. I'm overwhelmed by the demands being placed on me. Uh, today, I hear it every day. So we started thinking about what, what is going on here and what is the effect of all this anxiety and overwhelm on people. And what we found is it's compromising people's capacity to make good decisions for themselves, to, to make healthier choices and, and to make um, decisions that create the lives they want. They most want to create. So that's where agency comes in because agency is a a very robust concept. And it essentially is about the human capacity to make choices, uh, to to make a decision regardless of of your circumstances. And I think what a lot of people feel today is that they don't have uh, the ability to choose, uh, the freedom fully to choose. So many people feel constrained in making choices. And again, with the heightened anxiety and overwhelm, you know, there's a lot of fear that drives their decision making. So so you see a lot of people just silently suffering um, these days. It's really how can we as human beings make the best choices in our lives, despite the fact that everything has sped up so much and we're so overstimulated. We're all just trying 
trying to create lives that are meaningful and healthy and happy for ourselves. Um, and uh, that's really under threat today. So, Doctor, when we're experiencing all of this anxiety and overwhelm and we're feeling trapped and we're living in fear and, and doing all of the things that you just described, and we're trying to ignore the way we're feeling because of the very feelings we're having, why is that a bad idea? What happens to us when we try to stuff it or ignore it? Well, it, it doesn't get better. Obviously, it gets worse. And I think what a lot of people, I notice this in business <clears throat> quite a bit. Many of my clients in business, um, these are strong people um, who uh, try to gut it out and you know just grind through it. But what I found is that when people aren't being honest about what they're actually facing and, and dealing with and, and they don't address it, they just postpone the inevitable. So I start seeing physical health um, deteriorating in clients who ignore it. They they're, they're, they become depressed over time if, if they ignore it for too long. So I think it's, 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 it's a good time to just honestly face, how is my life going? Um, and agency, personal agency, begins with that, that capacity to take a step back, take a brief time out and reflect on where you find yourself and, and honestly assess, how is my life going? How am I feeling about this? How am I feeling about my work? How am I feeling about my family life? How am I feeling about where, we, where I live? Um, and, you know, really doing that kind of uh, check-in and being honest about the answer and then, and then finding some people to talk about it with, you know, finding a trusted um, loved one, counselor or coworker or whomever it is and just being honest and, and I see a lot of executives doing that these days and these are these are very high achieving people and they they are opening up and saying, you know, I, I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by what's on my plate and how do how do I address this? What do I do about it? So I think that that's the, the bottom line. I took your online test at powerofagency.com and I fell on the middle ground when it comes to controlling stimuli that I expose myself to. And and to be honest, I would agree with that. You write about a high agency person. What does that person look like and what does he or she do differently? Great question. Um, First, um, in terms of your score on the control stimuli subtest, uh, in, our, in our test, you did better than most people. Most people are doing, you know, really struggle with that. And controlling stimuli is, is, is the place that we start with people who want to gain a higher level of agency in their lives. Um, because what you allow into your mind largely determines how you feel, it determines how you think. And so when people do a better job of, of being aware of how much stimulation they allow into their lives, and we're we're talking primarily digital stimulation here, and when they make choices about how to limit that or, or get the optimal amount of stimulation, um, they do better. They feel better, and they think better. So you're ahead of the game, Joan, because most people from our research really are, are not doing a, a great job at, at managing and controlling the amount of stimulation they expose themselves to in, in the course of, of an average day. So what does a high-agency person look like? Well, you know, first of all, agency is situational. So what, what my level of agency is, how, how I feel in terms of you know, my own level of personal agency is going to vary somewhat depending on the situation. But a, a person who, who feels a high level of, of personal agency feels grounded, feels uh, centered, uh, feels that they um, have options. They, they, they feel a sense of what we call a high internal locus of control as opposed to an external locus of control. And those are you know, psychological terms that refer to how a person feels about themselves in the world. A high locus of control or, or internal locus of control rather means that I feel like I have the capacity to make this decisions in my life and act on the environment that I'm a part of. A person with external locus of control feels like the environment really has the upper hand and the external environment is largely dictating uh, what I'm able to do and the choices I'm able to make. So high lo- a person with high agency feels like most all the time they do have a, an internal locus of control. They, have an, they always have the capacity to make a choice in, in regardless of the situation. Sometimes they may, you know, so the choices may be somewhat limited. They may not be always the best 
your easiest choices, but there's always a choice. And what I found, what we found in our research is that more and more people are feeling constrained in terms of what's available to them in terms of the choices they can make in their lives. They, they, in other words, they feel carried, they feel like they're being carried along um, by life, by, by the, the external environment. And so what we want to remind people of is, hey, you do have, you, you always have this thing we call agency within you. It's your capacity to reflect on your situation and make a choice. And we forget that sometimes. We get so caught up in the moment and particularly when when we're overwhelmed, we, we lose track of that. So the book is really designed to help people, you know, gain hold of that again and build it, you know, to a higher higher level so that they actually are making you know, healthier choices each each and every day. Doctor, where does our agency come from? Is it from the subconscious programming that uh, you know, of everything we've experienced throughout our life? Is it something that's innate? It's a great question, and 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 a, and a pretty deep one, um, actually. I mean, you know, we noticed that among children, right, young children, they almost seem programmed, right? They they come into the world, they they want to learn, they want to uh, grow, uh, they want to be able to to walk and and talk and do all kinds of things, but. They also um, need to be taught. They need to learn from from other people, and so we can say that there is an innate human capacity for agency, uh, which again is this capacity to make good, rational choices in in one's life. Um, but it does need to be developed. So. In other words, um, you know how we think as human beings has a lot to do with our level of agency in our lives. It has a lot to do with the, the kind of lives we end up creating for ourselves. So agency does need to be developed, but there's an innate human desire for agency. We all want to feel like we're captains of our of our own ships, that we can you know sail through any kind of uh, sea and and navigate our lives. In, in a healthy, positive way. So there is this innate human desire uh, for agency. And agency feels good. When we exercise personal agency in our lives, it feels good. We feel like we've, uh, we've, we're, we're part of something. We're engaged. We feel a sense of personal power. We feel a sense of confidence in our, in our ability to, to make good decisions. Um, and so, you know, and that's really what has to be developed is is the capacity to form good social relationships with other people, a capacity to manage our emotions and beliefs, and our capacity to to think both um, you know intuitively and to think more logically and analytically. And so, what's interesting, agency is never taught really specifically to students, for example, um, but you know it is taught in, more indirectly because at the end of the day, our success is people. People depends on our capacity to adapt, our, uh, to adapt to change, of course. And as change accelerates around us, agency becomes a really critical part of the equation. Because without it, we're not going to be able to effectively adapt um, to to the environment around us. And that's where we see a lot of people falling, you know, falling down um, is is right there. And that's why we're seeing such elevated uh, levels of anxiety. As you said earlier, Joan, you know, 20% of Americans uh, carry around a a clinical diagnosis of of anxiety disorder. 20%. It's an enormous number, and there are many, many millions more who are just undiagnosed, who who really are are, are operating with, you know, extremely high levels of anxiety each, each and every day, and that's debilitating, and it's no fun, and it also compromises their ability to make good choices and to navigate their lives, you know, in, in a healthier way. Doctor, can you explain a feedback loop and how it relates to agency? Yeah, this gets into something that's quite important because agency, which is another another way of describing it, is our, our capacity to be effective agents for ourselves or you know to connect with our power, our internal power. It, it largely depends on socially who we're connected to. So when we are connected to and expose ourselves to other people who are healthy, who are positive, people who, whom we can learn from, people who might challenge us to think differently, uh, at, at times, um, our level of agency increases. If, if 
we surround ourselves with people who give us messages that we're not we're not enough, we're not good enough, um, or that we um, are incapable, or we're unattractive, or any of those kinds of negative sort of you get into a negative feedback loop, it really starts to affect how someone sees themselves, and it affects their love. It ultimately can affect their level of agency. And what we see today is we're exposed to so many messages now. Um, you know, it's, we're living in uncharted territory. Um, many people don't realize that because it's sort of like that frog in the boiling pot of water. The water just gets gets hotter and hotter on the stove, and, and, the, and the frog doesn't, you know, just notices it just slowly getting warmer, but it's all of a sudden when it gets super hot that the frog is extremely uncomfortable and want, you know, wants to jump out of the pot. And it's kind of like that's where we are as a society. I think people are just starting to get more aware of the kinds of messages that they're receiving and, and the effects of those messaging. So the negative feedback loop that you refer to is when people take in a message and, you know, if, if they're receiving a negative message or a message they're interpreting negatively, over time, that negative feedback loop gets worse and they're apt to spread that. So, so that person is apt to um, feel badly about themselves and they may, in their next interaction with another person, spread that negativity to that other person. So when it comes to anxiety, one of the things we, we, we like to stress to people that's really a critical thing to understand is anxiety is socially contagious. So if I'm extremely anxious, you're going to pick up on it and you're going to start feeling anxiety as well. So we do spread anxiety around. We also spread other feelings around as well. I think a lot of times people aren't aware of that and they, they may not be aware of the messaging too, that especially you know younger folks who spend a lot of time on social media report, you know, feeling in some ways less than a lot. They, they look at the lives that are portrayed on social media, these idealized lives, and they compare themselves. To, to, to what they see, the images, which of course aren't entirely real, and they feel badly about themselves. So, so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of messaging out there today that people need to be more critical consumers of and, and frankly need to move away from, move away from messaging that makes people feel um, less important or less powerful or less attractive. It's, it's just simply not a good idea to expose yourself to, to that type of stuff. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more because I actually went through that with social media when I went through some personal life challenges. And I started to realize that what everyone is showing is what I call their A-roll. You know, it's the A-game, but that's not everyday life. And I love one of your recommendations where you say to limit the time you spend on social media. It casts you in the role of a passive bystander in other people's lives, not as a director of your own life spend more time in your own life. And I think that that is such fantastic advice to spend more time in our own life. Absolutely. And, and spend time in real relationships, uh, you know, relationships in real time and relationships that are that are helpful to you that, again, allow you to to grow and learn and experience yourself in new ways. Because I think that's the other thing about social media is, you know, it generates a lot of feelings in people, but it, 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 it's, it's a, it is more passive. And, you know, it's unlike a um, a real relationship in real time where you you actually can see the person you develop good social skills because you're you're you know you're engaging with that other person and we we were finding in 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 many uh, work situations that you know younger folks who have been on social media a lot to to the point where they've excluded or limited the amount of real-time connectedness, real-time social relationships, that they show up in the workplace and their social skills aren't well-developed. So they struggle, right? They struggle with how to uh, work in a collaborative way with, you know, with a, a wide range of different people. And, you know, they really have to uh, embark on kind of a remedial education, a catch-up, as it were, um, because their their social skills have not developed. It's, you know, so it's a very, you know, social media is, is, is absolutely fine. But as you said, we, we liken it to, you know, having some potato chips, right? You know, we wouldn't ever sit down with 10 bags, large bags of potato chips and just 
just continue eating and eating until we we can't eat anymore. We're saying it's a useful thing to have a a portion of of potato chips and enjoy those, right? And then that's it. And the same thing with social media. You need to set some limits on it. You need to recognize it for what it is. And it's it's a relatively new thing in our society, right? We're still learning about it and learning about its positive and negative aspects. And I think people need to be a bit more sophisticated in consuming this digital stuff because it has a direct impact on how you feel about yourself. Um, and, and a lot of times it, it seeps in it, it, it slowly and and you don't even realize it's happening. Have a balance in your life. You know, make sure that you have healthy social relationships. And, you know, by definition, you know, social media, it's, it's not entirely real, right? It's just, it's just not. That's, that's the reality. The book is The Power of Agency, The Seven Principles to Conquer Obstacles, Make Effective Decisions, and Create a Life on Your Own Terms. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Knapper and his work, you can visit powerofagency.com. Dr. Knapper, thank you so much for joining us and for teaching us about the power of agency and how it can help us regain control of our lives and create the life that we want to live. Well, thanks for having me on, Joan, and, and congratulations on your show. Just You could do great stuff and, and help lots and lots of people. So thanks again for having me on. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Fine Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here again, Joan. I love our time together. So, Eileen, what we're talking about today has a a little different slant to it. When we think of a woman who has a poor body image, we tend to see that woman as someone who is overweight. But can a thin woman experience bad body image? Oh, Joan, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um... As you know, I have worked with so many women who have body image issues, and there is a substantial number of thin women who have issues that um, sound, when they talk, they sound very much like women who are larger and have body image issues. So it's a very interesting question. Uh, So, yes. The answer to that question is, then women can have body image issues. You know, all the years, Eileen, that I've struggled with my weight and the way that I saw myself, I would read these stories about women that were models and and people that I believed were the epitome of beauty. And then I would hear how they would look in a mirror and pick at every little flaw that they saw. And I really didn't understand it. So Where do these negative images that it seems like all women end up having about their bodies? Uh, Wonderful, wonderful question. And the first thing I want to say about this is that uh, when we're left to our own devices and we're really paying attention to our bodies, 
and uh, behaving accordingly to the messages our bodies are sending, we're going to find ourselves at a natural weight. For some women, the natural weight is larger. For some, it's in a medium range. And for others, it's at the, the other end of the continuum as thin or very thin. Some of that is genetically driven. Some of that is culturally driven. And so I need to say that first. And secondly, I would say that um, you were mentioning about models who pick at every flaw when they look at the mirror and we look at their bodies as being beautiful. And so one can't help but wonder. And again, you know, you, you, uh, you read interviews with some of these models, you hear them speak on TV, and oftentimes they were picked at and picked on when they were younger. They were called skinny, a stick. It was as um, hurtful to them as my being called fat when I was a kid, which happened to me frequently. Um, so the point being that I know that some of a large degree of the um, hurt that I felt was from the messages I received from early on, from family, from uh, friends, from classmates. And so I would wonder if these models you're talking about or very thin women were also hurt in that way when they were young. Were they given negative messages about how skinny they were? Were they told that they looked like boys? The point being that a lot of these messages or the hurtful responses that we have and how we then feel about our bodies has to do with a lot of it has to do with the messages we received when we were younger. And these models that you're talking about, you have to know that their bodies are picked apart by the marketing agencies, the advertising agencies, their agents, um, because they're supposed to look lean and perfectly lean. And of course, we're human beings, and that's not possible. We recognize that self-love is an inside job, and, and we'll never really be happy until we go inside and work on all of the wounds that you talk about and, and all of the things that make us see ourselves the way that we do. So what do you say to all women? What do you want us to know? I want all of us to adopt that beauty comes in all shapes and sizes. Let's adopt that belief because it is true. And all we have to do is look at the natural world in order to see the wide array of uh, flora that comes in all shapes and sizes and colors. And we have to believe that we can be beautiful with our bodies the way they are naturally designed, which for some people are long and lean. And for other women, for many other women, not so much. Um, a lot of us are not designed to have long and lean bodies, and yet that's what we try to achieve so frequently. Eileen, thank you so much for discussing this topic with us. If you would like to learn more about Eileen and her work, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. And as always, to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen. Eileen, thank you for being here. Oh, I loved it as usual, Joan. We'll be right back. If you're a small business and doing your own social media, you may be wondering why you don't have more followers. You may think, don't people want to buy what I'm offering? This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. We used to keep our private business private. Now we're encouraged to put ourselves out there on social media. This may be uncomfortable for some of us. I know I'm not that crazy about giving people I don't know all my personal details. This may sound funny coming from a person who makes a living on social media. But here's the thing. 
Social media is like a cocktail party. If you go to a party and the person who invited you doesn't do anything but try to sell you something, that is probably a party you wouldn't want to go back to. So, like a cocktail party, social media is an opportunity to have your customers get to know you and understand your passion for your business. You don't have to give them your kids' names or where you live, but you do have to tell them why your business is important to you and ultimately to them. Why did you get into this business? And most importantly, why are you different from anyone else? That gives your followers a reason to spend their money with you. If there were a few hundred people calling your business to learn more about you and hear about you, you would be thrilled. So why aren't you thrilled with a hundred or more followers on social media? Give that some thought the next time you're looking at your number of followers. If you need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized for more information, visit CYACYL.com slash book club. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. No one wants to experience the downside of life, but as sure as the sun rises each day, we will. And when that happens, we have the opportunity to either let it defeat and define us or to transform and lift us. Today's guest, Rachel Hollis, has experienced fear, grief, loss, and betrayal. She is here today to talk about how to embrace the difficult moments of life. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joan, thank you so much for having me. So, Rachel, I have to tell you, when I was reading your book and when I was researching your work and how you've gotten to be on this journey that you're on, I really felt like I was looking in the mirror because everything that I'm doing and the work that I've built and and created is from the ashes of really traumatic experiences in my life. So I'm very excited about having you join us today because you've been able to turn your life experiences into life lessons. What put you on this path? What did you go through in life? Well, I had a pretty hard childhood. I had, um, I would say dysfunctional family, but I don't know if we were even functional at all. Parents who experienced a lot of um, of their own trauma growing up and sort of brought that then into the home with them, which happens quite often their relationship was really troubled. And then that kind of bled out into the rest of our family. So I grew up with a lot of, you know, screaming fights, holes being punched in the wall, you know, um, really a lot of fear, I guess I would say. I, I grew up as a little girl I can recognize now, and I spent most of my childhood sort of anticipating that um, something bad was about to happen. And when I was 14 years old, my older brother committed suicide and Mm -hmm. I found him. Mm -hmm. And that was um, whatever family there was, was decimated by that event. And so much of the person that I am now is truly the work of trying to come back to um, I guess there's no normal. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say normal, but trying to do the work to get healthy and become whole again after having gone through so much of that. Rachel, two years before I was born, my 14 year old brother passed away. So I understand what that does mm-hmm. to the dynamics of a family. And then I grew up being the subservient good girl, trying to please everyone mm-hmm. because I didn't want my family to experience any more pain. And then I created this yeah. life for myself where. I was the people pleaser. And fast forward 23 years into a marriage, I lost my sense of self, who I was. And in the trying to reclaim who I was, I changed the dynamics of our relationship. My husband didn't like it. We ended up having marital issues. While that was going on, my mother and sister both died within a period of six months. And so in Mm. six months in middle age, I lost my marriage. I lost my, my mother. I lost my sister. My son left for college. So I I 
so understand, and, and I'm sharing this with you and with the listeners because I understand the root of where your work evolved from because mine was on a similar path. So you've written about all of, of these lessons that you've learned and, and you've really made it your mission to help other people who might be experiencing something similar. Can you share with us just some of the biggies, some of the things that you've really learned that you now use as a foundation for your life? Oh my gosh, what are what are my most favorites? Um, I think that probably the the most life changing moment that I in my adult life that I've ever experienced, I wrote about in Girl Wash Your Face, which was my first nonfiction book. Um, was I was at a conference and someone said this line that I will never forget. They said, or I guess they asked this question. They said, "What if life isn't happening to you? What if life is happening for you?" And if you were to believe that life is happening for you, then that has to mean that even the hard times, even the bad times, even the trauma, that there's something in it for you. And I felt like I had the answer to a question I have been asking for years because I really do approach my life and have approached my life this way for a very long time, but I didn't have the language for it. I would look back on, let's say, the loss of my brother, which was so awful, but I could see goodness in it. I could see that my empathy came from that experience. I could see um, the woman that I became because of that. And not to say that everything happens for a reason, because I hate that expression, but I do think it's possible to find meaning in everything that happens. Mm -hmm. So that was a profound experience was to really start to ask in every situation, how can this be for me? And that's the thing, Rachel, it's making that decision to see it through a different lens. As you said, I I can remember when my father was dying of lung cancer, we were getting close to him passing away. and And I went to seek counsel from my parish priest. And I remember him saying to me to look for the blessings in the situation. And to be honest, I was very angry at him because I thought, are you kidding me? My father's dying and you want me to find a blessing? But what he meant was what you just said, where you place your attention, it, it really determines the way you view the situation. So now when I look back at that time, those four months when my father was sick and I accompanied him to chemo and, and all of his treatments, he and I spent a lot of time together getting to know each other. I learned more about mm-hmm. him in those four months than I had in all of my years living with him. So I treasure that now. As crazy as that sounds, I treasure the time when my father was sick because we had really valuable moments together. And that's just a choice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it is, this is a practice that you have to put into play, right? Like most people don't, most people are not taught to view the world through this lens. But if you challenge yourself every day to be looking for those moments, to be looking for the blessing in a situation, then it teaches you to start doing it without conscious thought which is so powerful. I mean, you know, what, 20 years ago, Oprah told us all that we needed a gratitude practice. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a little girl watching that show and starting, literally, I have journals from when I was 12, where I started doing a gratitude practice. And it is still very much a huge component of my life and work. And because I do this every single day, I'm able to live in this place where I am looking constantly for the blessing. So it's what I see. Rachel, you teach women to stop defining themselves in the light of other people. And as I told you, that's what I've done basically for my entire adult life. You believe that there are excuses that we tell ourselves to justify our behavior. What are some of these excuses that you think can govern our lives? I think one of the biggest excuses or the biggest lies that women, most women are raised to believe is that you have to please others in order to have love. Um, And I don't think that it's sort of put into those terms. That's not something anyone ever told me as a little girl, but I was absolutely raised to believe that I needed to look a certain way, act a certain way, speak a certain way, 
in order to make everybody else around me comfortable and in order to feel like I was succeeding as a person. So often women are defined based on their relationship to others. So if you're a good mom for your kids, if you're a good wife for your partner, if you're a good daughter, if you're a good sister, then you're good. And you said this earlier, Joan, you know, you had this experience where you were inside of a marriage and you felt like you had sort of lost yourself, which is something that happens to so many women because you spend so much time trying to figure out what would make other people happier, what would make other people think that you are good, that you are right, that you are the way that you're meant to be, that you forget what it is that you even like or care about. And if you unpack the why behind that, if you really sort of get deep down, what it comes down to is that people pleasers believe that if they aren't pleasing, then they won't have love. And I, in a lot of my work and a lot of my personal therapy, got to this place in my life where I thought, you know what, because I am a, oh my gosh, I am a recovering people pleaser. Like I could be the queen of the people pleasers. But I got to a place where I thought, okay, Rachel, if your fear is that at, at your core, even if it's subconscious, that you are not going to be loved, then you have to live your life in a way where you, you personally are so filled with love. You are so filled with love for yourself and you are so filled with love for others that it doesn't matter if they love you back. Because if you generate love, then you will always have love. If you have that within yourself, then you don't need to seek it out in negative ways from other people. So that was a huge, huge lesson for me. And one of the things I get, it's funny, my work, I'm not totally sure why, but my work tends to be very polarizing. People either love me or they hate me. And so one of the questions that I get a lot when I do interviews is people will say, you know, how do you deal with the negative feedback? How do you deal with people who don't like you? How do you deal with people who think you're too positive? How do you deal with these things? And I always think it's funny that so many journalists want to ask that question. And for the longest time, I was like, what is the deal? And then I realized it's because people want to know. They're like, no, literally tell me how to stop caring so much what the world thinks. And if you can ground yourself and if you can ground your work in the right place, which I believe is a place of love and wanting to create and wanting to put goodness out in the world, I don't care what anyone says about the work because I am not doing the work for the accolades. I'm not doing the work for the the masses. I am doing the work because I believe that, on, honestly, um, we're, we're going real deep now, Joan, but I'll just tell you that my prayer for the last 10 years with everything I do, with the books that I write, with keynote speeches that I give, with the podcast, all of it, my prayer is always the same. God, give me just one person. Give me just one person. If one person's life is made better, if one person gets an idea, if one person feels hope, if one person changes their perspective because of something I created, then my life's work is worth it. And if that is the bar, then I'm untouchable. Then I cannot care of the opinions of strangers on the internet because they're not what I'm chasing. The book is Didn't See That Coming. If you'd like to get more information about Rachel and her work, you can visit didn'tseethatcominginewbook.com. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com, which stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and sign up for the mailing list. Rachel, in about 30 seconds or less, very quickly, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? You, my takeaway is always the same. You are in control of what happens next. And if you want a better life, you're going to have to take ownership of how you make that happen. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. We'll be right back. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club.
productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She is here today to discuss the shocking truth about confident people. Welcome, Odette. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So Odette, I love the topic of this conversation today because we seem to think that confident people have it all together. I mean, they have it all going on. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions about confident people? Well, yes, there are a number of pretty significant misconceptions about confident people. The first big misconception is that confident people never feel self-conscious or afraid and that they always succeed. Confident people have the same fears and insecurities and anxieties as everyone else does, and they experience setbacks from time to time. They're not immune from engaging in the entire spectrum of normal human emotions and experiences, both positive and negative. Another big misconception is that confident people are arrogant or conceited, and this is generally speaking not true at all. In fact, arrogance is a sign of insecurity, not confidence. Arrogant people often tend to act as if they are superior in order to hide their true feelings of weakness. Confident people are not interested in proving that they are superior to anyone else. They simply believe in their own abilities and are aware of what their own value is. There's not a sense of competitiveness or the need to prove anything. The third misconception is that all confident people are extroverts or have big, bold personalities, that they're the loudest person in the room or that they're the most popular. Actually, introverts can possess quiet confidence that can be just as impactful as that of confident extroverts, even if it's not outwardly obvious. As Gandhi wisely taught, in a gentle way, you can shake the world. Odette, why do you think so many of us make these assumptions about people that appear confident? I think that people make these assumptions or have these misconceptions about people that are confident because we tend to think of confidence as a feeling. We say things like, I don't feel confident. But the Latin root of the word confident means with trust. So to have confidence can be defined as to trust yourself. It's not so much about feeling confident as it is about being confident. It's having the trust in yourself, the confidence in yourself, the self-awareness of your own value, your strengths, your resources, and believing that you will do what it takes. And that even if you fail, you have the trust or the confidence that you will be okay. You know that you have your values, your strengths, and your resources to fall back on, get up, and keep moving forward. Another reason for these misconceptions is that we assume that in order to be confident, you have to do something bold, such as run for office or lead a big successful company. And although people that do these big, bold things may be confident, that is not the only way of exuding confidence. We tend to associate confidence with huge accomplishments. But if you eliminate that association, in reality, we are all confident about something. If you stop and think about it, there are plenty of things that we're all confident about. Maybe you're confident in your cooking skills or your ability to do your job effectively. You may be confident in how you ride a bike or drive your car. You know, we tend to focus on the things that we don't do well or the things that we are afraid to try. But if we take a moment and think about all the things we are confident in, we can acknowledge that we are confident. We do trust ourselves in certain circumstances. And then once we can acknowledge that, we can build up our confidence by willing, being willing to try new things. What do those people know that the rest of us may not? What is the truth about confident people? The truth is that confident people experience the same emotions as every other human being, including insecurity, fear, and anxiety. Confident people are willing to take action in spite of these fears and insecurities. They're willing to feel uncomfortable. They're willing to feel fear. They are aware of the risks as well as the potential in certain situations, and they're willing to take the risk. In other words, they're more prone to focus on what can go right instead of what can go wrong. And they believe that even if things don't go as planned, or even if they fail, they will be okay because they have their strengths to fall back on. Confident people are also willing to admit when they're wrong, or when they make a mistake, or when they don't know something. They're willing to fail, and they see failure as a lesson, not necessarily an ending. They're not stopped by the failure or setback. They keep going. Confident people also believe that they can learn new things. 
So ultimately, confidence is really about self-awareness. It's about knowing who you truly are so that when the instances of self-doubt and insecurity creeps in, which they they may, they often Mm -hmm. do, even if you're confident, uh, you will not allow them to hold you back from doing the things that you want to do and being the person you want to be. As for the second misconception, you know, the truth is that you can be strong and bold, but also kind and compassionate. Confidence does not mean that you believe that you're better than anyone else. It's not about comparing yourself to others at all. It's about believing in yourself and striving to be your own personal best. So with everything that you just described, how can a person learn to increase their self-confidence? There are a number of things you can do in order to learn how to increase your own self-confidence. First of all, make a list of your strengths and your resources. Make a list of all of your past accomplishments. What are some of the things you're really self-confident about already. Write them down and write why you feel confident about it. Remind yourself of all the things that you once did not know how to do and now you're great at. Hey, we had to learn how to walk, right? At one point, we didn't even know how to do that. Right. So that's always a great way to, to, to start. Also, do something outside of your comfort zone. For example, you know, give a speech or Try singing karaoke. (laughs) Increase your self-confidence by trying something new and then not giving up when you fail. You must be willing to feel uncomfortable and keep going anyway. Be aware of your language and your own internal self-talk. Make sure you're not, you know, constantly criticizing yourself. Maybe wear an outfit that makes you feel good. That always feels nice and helps elicit confidence. Compliment other people. Confident people like giving compliments. Be willing to take action, consistent action. Can you believe that the Beatles at one point were not very good in the beginning? (laughs) They performed (laughs) at hundreds of dive bars for a handful of people in the audience, but they didn't give up. They kept playing, they kept performing, and eventually they got better, and then they got great until they became a phenomenon. (laughs) I think Carrie Fisher said it best. She said, stay afraid, but do it anyway. What's important is the action. You don't have to be confident. Just do it, and eventually the confidence will follow. I always like to say Nike summed it up best with their slogan, just do it. And everything else (laughs) follows, as you said. So Odette, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Odette and her work, you can visit odettecoronel.com. Or as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Odette. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.